Straight out of Gibraltar, sponsored by Coca Cola. Welcome to Straight Outta Gibraltar, bringing you interviews and all the best music from the Gibraltar music scene. Hey guys, welcome to Straight Outta Gibraltar, a brand new episode. We did say we'd bring one every two weeks, and obviously we're just glad to be here and to bring you another episode. And of course, before we get carried away, and obviously like everything else, we'd like to thank our sponsors, of course, Second and Speed, Coca-Cola, and of course, thanks Guy Bovedan and Siraj Ward, and Mary Favre as well for their kind trust in everything that we do and everything that we'll continue to do for the foreseeable future. And we revealed who our guest was going to be, and obviously it comes to no surprise if you're listening to it now, but we're just very glad to have him on and actually to be able to talk to us today. So we welcome Richard Gamela. Welcome, Richard. Uh, hello, David. How are you? That's about yourself? Yeah, good, good to be here, talking to you. Well, it's a nice day, so actually we can actually be glad that it's not as misty as it's been the last two days. Yeah, <laughs> but it's nice to be here because it gives me the opportunity to um, inform the audience. I think uh, for those of those of you who are listening who are over 20 years old, you, you, a lot of what we're going to be talking about is going to be new to you because the, the group vibrations, which I was part of, uh, ceased to exist in the year 2000. That's 20 years ago. So it should be interesting to to listen to what was happening 20 years ago and, and before that. It's a nice trip down memory. And the most important thing is where we sat. Now we can actually watch the world go by. Obviously, Line World, more or less this area, we had the Theatre Cafe. But obviously, it's, everything's closed off. And obviously, like, only on weekends. But it's nice to see the cars go by. I actually enjoy the weather. And more than anything else, just enjoy the good conversation. So, Richard, you know for playing the guitar. And obviously, people who know you will probably know that, even people who don't know, they'll already find out this news now. But why did you pick the guitar? What, is it, what was it about the guitar that drew to you as to why you wanted to learn in the first place? Well, funnily enough, my, my, my family's all been very musically orientated. <clears throat> my eldest brother's 10 years older than me, a uh, very talented musician, uh, pianist. He lives in London here. He's, he's lived in London for the last 40 years. And we had a piano at home. Um, 
But finally enough, the, the, I tried the piano, but the guitar was the one, the instrument that really the, I wanted to play. It could have been the fact that I, I used to live in Hospital Steps and uh, Richard Cardona, I don't know whether somebody will remember Richard Cardona. His father used to be a, a guitarist, very good guitarist. And we used to mess about with the guitars and that. And uh, eventually the guitar was, I'm talking, I must have been about seven or eight years old um, when this happened. At that time, the music center uh, opened by um, Bishop Caruana yeah. at the Sacred Heart and Hector Cortez, who was a, a incredible musician, uh, versatile in, in, in all instruments, um, opened the doors to, to anybody who wanted to learn an instrument. And I went there and it was almost on the first come, first serve and pick the instrument you wanted. And I remember going up there with my brother and coming home with a, a euphonium, which is a, a smaller version of the of the tuba. Yeah. And my parents had shock of their lives, you know, when I walked <laughs> in with this euphonium. And uh, it gave it a go. But then I decided to, to go for the guitar. And at the time, unlike today, where most families are relatively well off and you could buy an instrument. My parents couldn't really afford uh, a guitar. But there was one at the, at the um, music center, which uh, they, they, I managed to, to get it on loan. And that guitar was for me my lifesaver. And what happened with that guitar, it was, started with six strings, then as one broke, they had five, mm -hmm. three, and I ended up playing with one. But the enthusiasm was, was such that it didn't matter uh, whether you had six or one string. And looking back, I think that, that did me a lot of good. It's the eagerness to learn, I suppose. Oh, yes, absolutely. And then my brother, when he started working, bought a, a second-hand guitar, acoustic guitar, and the action of the guitar was terrible, terrible action, really hard guitar. Mm. But that, I think, also helped me to 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 increase my, my stamina, in the, in, especially in my left hand. So well, to tell you the truth, the first proper guitar I had when I got married and I went to honeymoon and, and, and bought one. So... Um, some some of your listeners there who play the guitar don't know how lucky they are to <laughs> to end up with a three or four hundred pound guitar as a first shot. It's very it's very say but very hard to do back then, like you mentioned in particular. Obviously, we talked you, you spoke about Hector Cortez, and for people who are not aware about Hector Cortez, he was just instrumental to the to the careers of many. Similar, I just say similar to what Christian Santos has become to and Chris Cortez and many others have been to. Uh, the present crop of uh, local musicians, he was pretty much the, the pivotal figure behind the success of many, like yourself and many others. Absolutely. I mean, if you look, if you look at the the start of the training center, the, um, the music center, we have people like Johnny Victor with the flutes, um, um, or Dr. Faro with the oboe, yeah. um, Albert Vallejo, who's an incredibly good uh, yes, indeed. bass bass player and, and tuba. And even I remember briefly um, Charlie Ramirez making an appearance there um, in the music center with, with his classical guitar just before he set off to, to make a career of, of the classical music. But Hector was there was incredible. That, that there's, I think we've been blessed with different um, times with people like Hector Cortez, um, William Gomez, um, Charlie Shappy and Helen Shappy, who really set the standards. Um, yeah. Chris Cortez, you know, there are people who are super gifted in, in the music, and 
they have made a difference and they've, they've had they've sowed the seeds uh, probably <clears throat> in many cases not even aware of, of what was going to happen but the evidence is there and if you look back into the musicians that or those kids who went up to the to the Sacred Heart Music Center and uh, whether now and the influences they've had in, with other musicians um, it's there you know and Hector Gote was a very very talented mm -hmm. musician I mean, I can read circle because my dad was in the music sense too, and I remember just that. Absolutely. And, uh, did, uh, and the fact that my dad was a part of it, and like even when he joined the regiment band, I always see the fact that Hector was the first band master of that particular band. For for my dad, I don't think my dad would be playing guitar without Hector. Like the eagerness, and it wasn't just, they weren't just teachers, they were, they were uh, teachers, they were believers as well in your talents. And to be hard on you is because they probably see your potential, and I think that's the best way to go on about this. You know, you can't. Just say, okay, play the song, and then maybe you won't play guitar again for another 10 years. He probably saw the talent for you that was good enough for you to perhaps make it, make it even your career. I, I think the, I mean, I, as you know, I've been a teacher for 38 years now and retired now. But I think the one of the qualities you, you have to have is to, <clears throat> to mo motivate. And uh, music for me, I didn't study music. I studied science technology, but I ended up my teaching career um, teaching music with Chris Cortez, uh, teaching the guitar, a performance with the guitar. But the fact that the music for me is so important, and I think in society it's so important. Yeah. And if you look at, you know, you see toddlers around, and when they go to nurseries, they're motivated with nursery rhymes music, essentially, and they're motivated with crayons and painting, two very, very creative um, elements which help in the learning. What happens later is that for some reason our educational system, it's, it's watered down. And when you reach a level where you can really uh, use music as a potential, because I mean, music's for life. I mean, music yeah. is not like sport. And again, I, I used to play hockey and I gave it up when I was about 30. But music is for life. And music is... I have used music in school um, with students with um, behavioral problems who have been able to see that learning an instrument, and obviously there are different levels of learning an instrument. You, yep. don't, you don't need to, to uh, you can pick a guitar and within two weeks play a handful of chords and, and enjoy the instruments. There are some other instruments which are a bit more difficult to, yep. to, to acquire the, a level of enjoyment. You know, when you look back, and I look back, and to people like Hector Cortez, people who, who never said, they never auditioned you in terms of whether you had a certain innate a quality to, to be a musician. You just went there and you started it. And most of, I'm sure that all the names are given, and in fact, I forgot your dad. I remember your dad well with, yeah. with the drums. And I think he also probably had his, his hand with a xylophone, because there used to be a big xylophone on at, at the top of the, the sacred heart. We, we went there and we were encouraged. And, you know, I don't remember anybody telling me, God, don't play that. That's, you know, you've made, made a mistake. It's just enjoy the music, enjoy. And, and it kept us together. And that's the most important thing, like you mentioned, is also the fact that maybe people who are going through behavioral problems, or like in school, like you mentioned, being a teacher, they can use music as some sort of therapy, as an escape to get away from the, the bad stuff and to actually get into something good that was actually a distraction, a very good distraction with my dad.
I mean, all you have to do is look around. You look around, walk down Main Street, and people with headphones, people who go into training, doing fitness training, doing music, all bit different type of musics, uh, everybody. But essentially, if you look very carefully, music is an, a very important part of everybody's life. Uh, emotions, brings about memories, uh, soothing, calming, and you know, I, w I would have, I would like to see music playing. Not that it hasn't got an important role within the the curriculum, but even a higher higher um, preference to to music. And unfortunately, you know, we since the days of the grammar school, uh, people with a lot of talent. My brother. Uh, my brother Charles, when he was six, he could play to a level, you know, grade grade seven. But it, again, he was academically talented, and he was pushed into the sciences. So really, that that is the way that society used to drive you. And thankfully, it's, today it's not so much the case. In the last probably 10, 15 years, there's been people like uh, I can mention someone like. Simon Dumas, who has, has very academic, he could have taken any route he wanted, uh, following the family's uh, trade of lawyers, and he went into the music industry uh, with the blessing of the family, which and, and that is tremendous, you know, that's incredible. And it's the fact that, like you mentioned, the eagerness as well, and not even the eagerness, but the push, like you mentioned, from the parents or even the guardians or whatever, who push you, and if you want to make a music career, and even the teachers that say, okay, if you want, if you think you, you want to do this as a career, then you go. You know, you're elevated and pushed to try and make it. I suppose similar to what Simon was like. Absolutely, and, and I think it, even if you don't, I mean, we we very with vibrations. For those of you who don't know, we we got we had a, a, a we we're very very lucky, very privileged to be able to live a semi-professional life and move in, in circles in the industry yeah. um, that you could never dream of of, uh, of, of doing here in Gibraltar, you know? For example, we, we played over 30 concerts in the, the Fest Royal Festival Hall. Uh, as uh, That in itself is, is something that every musician's dream, yeah. you know? Um, playing like, uh, sharing the stage with someone like Paco Dulcia, you know, yeah. uh, this is um, Roberto Carlos, George Benson. You know, th th this is something that really enriches your life, and it's a, a total different outlook. And even if you don't make it in the industry, because really, we were cut short when William Gomez died in the year 2000. Uh, nobody's going to take that from you, and the experienced people you meet, and the humbleness which is out there, yeah, which, say. which I think that you know, some of the doses could could probably drop uh, around in, around the city sometimes. Um, it's incredible because it doesn't matter how how high you are up in the ranking, you're still, everybody has had to work the way up. Some quicker than others, faster than others, but everybody yeah. will, it's there to help you. And what we took from, from that experience is that all musicians, doesn't matter whether they are out to help you. And obviously the, yeah. the the team, the crews, everybody is out to to make it easy for you and not difficult. Yeah, and the most important thing is, like you mentioned, the fact that you can be around Paco de Lucia, Roberto Carlos, George Benson, all these greats in music, 
but to be around them, and you mentioned the humbleness that comes with it as well. I remember meeting um, Bako's brother once in Ahasiras, and he was telling me all about his brother and telling me how humble he was and actually not forgetting his roots as well, which is more important than anything else. But the fact that he could go um, probably around, in, in, I want to say, around Ahasiras in general, obviously he swarms, but the fact that he was still swarms, he still had time for everyone, you know, to say hi and if he speaks to the person selling food, to the person probably selling, uh, selling clothes on the street, you know, he would actually have a lot of time for everyone. But to come, like I mentioned, to perform at the World Festival Hall, and actually have some, some like William Gomez around you as well, who was very grounded as well, and very humble as well for what he did. But to be around that must, must have been a very special time. Indeed, indeed. And, and I mean, for me, the, the, I think music, it's a learning curve that doesn't stop. And uh, you learn everything, you, you learn something new every day. And I mean, I remember now talking personally when, when I, I took up the guitar and when it started to get a bit serious, I was about 15, went to some lessons with William, but then realized that there wasn't any way I could get a grant in those days to, to do guitar, classical guitar, as, as a career, unless my parents could, could afford it, and they couldn't. So I, I very quickly decided to take another route in my career and ended up teaching. But I, I kept on playing the guitar, and I believe, I've, I've always believed that acquiring techniques, different techniques, yeah. will give you the tools to be able to, to progress and improvise and, and develop your skill as a guitarist. A little point in my, my playing career was 1977, 1997, sorry, not 70, 1977, when Paco de Lucia came to London and played in the Wigmore Hall, with Queen Elizabeth Hall. And I'd heard Paco Lucia, the Entre los Aguas, was ringing bells all over the place. I really hadn't heard of hadn't heard Paco Lucia play as Paco Lucia. This was a peak of Paco Lucia, you know, in yeah. the seventies. I remember going there with my very good friend Dennis Beltran, sitting down watching, and George Garcia was there too. And you know, as soon as he started playing, I thought, oh shit, you know, <laughs> I want to, I want to play this. I want to acquire some of this technique. So we both, because Dennis plays the guitar, so does George. The three of us came. I think. You know, I want, I want to, I want to get play some of that. So we, I started looking at some of the techniques. I mean, obviously, very few people in the world. Carcos is just in a class of his own. Can play that pack of yeah. But there is, but if you accept that, you know, you can, you will get as far as, as you can, and you enjoy what you do, then you don't give up. So yeah. the, the new techniques that I started acquiring, you know, like Al Sapua, Raqueado and different ways of, of, of looking at the guitar, yeah. different to classical music, which later on helped me helped me perhaps add a little of my style to vibration, some of the tracks in vibration, yeah. which have a little element of a bit of flamenco here, and a, a, you know. A, it's a twist. It's a twist, yeah, and this is what vibration was about, because um, we started in 1981, when I came back, William approached and said, look, at the time Sky, a group called Sky, led by John Williams, a very famous classical guitarist. He had had the idea of getting um, musicians from from the rock world, jazz world, and they 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 did very well. They 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 started looking at pieces from Bach and and popping it up 
And that really was the first. Uh, William listened to this and said, well, I think we could do something similar, giving it our own taste. So in 1981, he approached me and you have in Sadon, another great guitarist. Yep. And I remember going to his, his flat in, in Moorish Castle and Canarios, which is one of the tracks you're going to be playing, was the first track we were trying things out with. And Canarios, it's a really old track. It's probably over two or three hundred years old, but, but we decided to give it a bit of flavor. And that was the first track. And we thought, yeah, this, this works. Yep. And then slowly we added um, Victor, who came into into the scene. Uh, play, remember, Victor Francis had, had been playing jazz and, and rock and what have you. So suddenly he found himself trying to uh, balance the percussion drumming into the, the classical world. And I remember the first flautist was Michael Costa, who used to teach yeah. music in the school. And the first bass player was James Isuk's late father, Tony. Tony. Yep. And then Pepe Pau came into the picture. But Tony was actually the, the, the first bass player we had in a very, very, very early vibrations, which wasn't even called vibrations then. It was, uh, we used to be known as William Gomez and Friends. Um, but that was really the, the start to um, our sound. And um, very interesting because you know, when you pick up a piece which is over two or three hundred years old and you liven it up and you give it some of your own flavor and you make it your own. Yeah. Because I think that this is any of my ex students listening, I mean, people like Jeremy Perez, Jesse McLaren, Patrick Murphy, all, all of which have been. The crazy bunch. <laughs> yeah, the crazy bunch. The, the um, Torrente brothers and all this. I've always told them, yeah, well, you still performances, doesn't matter what you play. You have to make it your own, because that, and not even if you're not if you're not even using the right chords or even following the, that solo, which is so famous in um, Hotel California, but you make it your own solo and you give your flavor. I think the the listener hasn't got to be a musician, yeah. and I think the 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 obviously the high percentage of the audience are not musicians. And the most important thing is that you mentioned obviously the fact that you went to the music and all these things, and then to revamp or you know, or even modernize all these tracks that you mentioned were 200, 300 years old. But it makes it made you appreciate it what you, what you were learning, and obviously appreciate that song even more. Absolutely. I mean, if you look, and I'll, I'll tell you a little story about one day William said we should do this piece, which is um, an invention by by Bach, and it required the basically the six musicians that we were, including Victor, it was all the total different melodies, super complex. And it took us weeks to put it together, weeks to put it together. And I remember when we first played it in front of an audience, you know, William uh, uh, telling the audience, this is a really difficult piece. And it, it sounded incredible, but surprisingly enough, we didn't get the response we expected from the audience uh, in terms of you know the invention which has taken us five or six weeks to, to and yet you know play something like any song yeah. James Galway and the, the, the audience would go crazy and we were there thinking oh bloody hell we spent so, <laughs> so much time with this piece and uh, then we play any song which has three chords 
and it's get, very simple, but it works. You get mm -hmm. this response, but that, it's also part of the learning curve when yeah. when you get to know your your audience, um, and it's something that we learn very quickly when we start playing in the in the in the UK. Um, we had to learn a lot very quick, very quickly. Uh, one of the one of the things I remember the first interview that William and I did in the BBC in London. Uh, and we had, obviously, William had done loads of different interviews, and I'd done a few here in Jib. But before we went in, this guy comes in and says, okay, look, um, this is the BBC. You're gonna, the audience is gonna be over 10 million. You know, so you think, oh, you know, try and visualize 10 million people listening. No pressure. <laughs> uh, you've got to be politically correct, you know, make sure you're not sexist, make sure what you say, you have to, um, careful because then we, we our audience is a very particular audience that you get complaints and you know blah, blah, blah. and then we went into this little room and uh, we had about three or four minute wait and I was looking at William thinking William you know I'm, I'm shit scared man <laughs> I don't know I don't know whether we should you know we're gonna offend anyone here you know but that it went very well but after that we got into the into the rhythm yeah. of, of interviews and, and what to say and what sold and what didn't. Because you know that after all, you're working in an industry. Yeah. And one of the first things we were talking about to tour, you know, this is um, this is work. This it, it happens to the best of the best. It's like you said, like uh, you have to find out what sells because at the end of the day, even with big name artists, big name bands as well, they find out probably the most underappreciated tracks on the album are the ones that people listen to more than the well-known songs that make it to number one on the charts. Yeah, absolutely. And it happens. I mean, we our first break actually came from um, Harry Seacombe. So Harry Seacombe used to have um, a program every Sunday. Oh, I, I, it was a religious program, Song of, Song of Praise, I think it was. And they came to Gibraltar to record. And we were asked, because we were doing local things and, and things were going relatively well, we were asked to do two numbers and I think we did Canarios and we played Mediterranean Worlds which is another the numbers another tracks I picked for you to play that one in particular uh, very fun because that was actually written by Albert Chappie yeah. and Guy Palmet and they gave us a track on a on a cassette the the melody of the track and then we made an arrangement and we played that and that's been one of one of our favorite ones because it it, it had 100% local yeah. inputs. Um, and we played that, and from that, surprisingly enough, there was a, a huge response from the the audience. When you when you show a program to 10 million people, there's a very, very small percentage. Yeah. It doesn't matter how small it is, it's always in the hundreds, and, and that made inquiries about the group, work with BICD. At that point, I think we had done a, a, a local recording but it wasn't to the standard that, that uh, you would get yeah. in a proper studio. So that's really where it all began, in that Harry Seacombe program, which was recorded in the cave. Uh, it's, it's, we spent over over 20 years together. And they're very tight nets as well, that's the most important thing. Yes, yes, we, I mean, we used to, we used to rehearse every Tuesday. And uh, closer to um, a concert or performance or a tour, we used to rehearse Tuesdays and Thursdays. 
And when we did our first tour with Michael Ball, we were, again, we were given a, a by uh, Brian Wade, managing us from, from the UK. Said, look guys, this has to be no perfect. You, know, you, you have to go in there and you have to kill it every single time. And there's no, we cannot have a lag. You go into a festival hall where people are playing and people don't, don't care where you come from, don't know who you are. They want to listen to good music. And we, believe me, we got on that plane and we were absolutely not, not perfect. We, had, we were probably the peak of, of yep. individual careers. Um, and it's, I, I think it's like, you know, when you you have a dream and you're following the dream and it's the journey there. Once you're there and you, you do it, yep. it becomes, well, what's, what's the next thing? You know, your, the, the motivation, you've reached your, your goal and you want to carry on doing more and more stuff. Um, playing in front of 8,000 people to 1,000 yeah. people with a PA system that could, could knock your, your, <laughs> your socks off. Your socks off. <laughs> uh, but with a quality that, that's unreal. And remember, another thing is we were a group totally instrumental. Yeah. And to keep an audience um, motivated and eager to listen to the next, it, it it took a lot, and I yep. think, uh, I mean, obviously our music, the way we selected the music and for, for different programs made a difference. But we learned, I mean, we learned all, all things, you know, we learned how to how to smile because, you know, the classical music sometimes can be very, very serious. Yeah. And we were told, oh, no, you have to move a bit more, you have to smile, you have to interact with the audience, you have to, so that's uh, it was an interesting, interesting, in, interesting time. And you mentioned Brian Wade, which I don't think many people seem to realize how pivotal, not just to your, to your career, but how pivotal he was when he was based locally. Obviously, he had a career, but obviously he's made a living out of music, out of managing just New Orks and many others. But he was very pivotal to pretty much carrying you guys everywhere on tour. No, no, absolutely. He, I mean, he, he once once we, we took off, he actually got the... the the machine going, the promotion going, yep. and we were signed to him, and he was up instrumental. The contacts, the the tours, the everything, you know, everything. And Jerry, his wife Jerry, who's in, in, incredible in, in, in promoting and getting interviews. I mean, I remember uh, William and I ha having to fly over um, on a good Friday because we had there was a slot in Cardiff BBC Radio Two or something, and because it was Good Friday, they had a an hour slot, and Brian said, you know, we can't miss this. You know, this we've been given an hour slot, where in a Good Friday everybody's listening to to this to, to Radio Two, and we just got on the plane, went went over, but by that stage we were past thinking about what we had to say. So we used to take the guitars and do yeah. almost uh, an unplugged version of um, some of the pieces. Normally it was William, Victor, and, and I, we just, the three of us just play little bits and snippets of, of um, it's amazing. Once you had the confidence, you don't even think about that. Yeah. You know, that's, loads of people listen to you, you just, just play and, and 
to get on with it, you know. And as as well as the intrigue, because obviously once they heard you on the radio, they're probably thinking, well, if the, you know, the sport acts like you mentioned, like for Michael Ball, Shelley Bassey, and me and Michael Crawford, but the, the fact that you did that, and then for people who are probably going to see you, was where they were, they were probably getting a preview of what you guys were all about as well. That's right, and and the the last tour we did with we did two tours with Shelley Bassey. The last tour we did, we weren't meant to be there. And she actually started the tour, and there was a break. She went to Cardiff, there was a two or three day break, and she didn't like the uh, the, the group that was um, doing the, the act before her. So Brian phoned and said, look guys, Shelly Bassey wants your tour. Um, so, uh, you know, we were up to scratch. We were match, totally match fit. So we asked, so okay. But obviously Brian being the man said, but this time things will change because they've called us and now we have yep. we have a, a, a wedge. So we got on a plane and we were there and, and we went straight into into the auditorium. The guys that were doing the sound knew us, so they knew it was just, let's get on with it and, yeah. and enjoy it, you know. In fact, I remember, I think that one, first part of the tour, George Possel joined us because Michael Martinez couldn't make it because of the... He couldn't get enough leave, and George joined us for for part of that tour, and uh, then Michael came came over and took over. And how important was it? And you mentioned obviously the fact that William was your teacher, but how pivotal was it perhaps to even have him on like obviously you go and tour on but on a daily basis to have him there with you to guide you pretty much as to and having the knowledge of this guru of of, of the guitar. Always we, we spend loads loads of time together. On tour, we used to have breakfast together, the whole the six of us. But funnily enough, uh, we talked about everything except probably the guitar because because after so many years, I think there was a, an interesting dynamics, you know, the the, yeah. uh, the chemistry, where I obviously I learned a lot from William. I learned a lot from William, and. Um, William was a character in itself, and we really needed, needed to know William well to be able to to digest his sense of humor and all the other bits and pieces. But of course, being a classical guitarist, and in the classical world, perfection is paramount. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you and um, you you do a solo concert in the classical guitar, and you and you miss one note, and someone in the audience will write it down on a piece of paper and on the, well, on a review, I will tell yeah. them yes. Uh, you played really well, but you, you missed the G note on this particular bar, and but but that was part of the discipline too. Yeah, because it's um, it gave us that discipline, and uh, but it, it was a, a mutual. You know, we, I think we learned a lot from each other, not only musically, but I think you know when you spend a lot of time with people, that's the, like a a leveling exercise of acceptance. For example. Yeah. And William used to smoke a lot, and Judah used to smoke a lot, and I've never smoked. <clears throat> so we had a, this bit of a internal conflict of, you know, we used to, I used to, first time we went on tour, we had a guy with us all the time, with a coach taking us all over the place. And I thought, I, I said, look, if we, have, if we ever come again, we'll, I'll drive, you know, but I don't want a guy saying, oh, tomorrow at eight, I'll pick you up at nine. You know, we want the freedom of being able to. And smoking, smoking was an issue. So we, we uh, I remember opening all the windows in the in the M1 going to Birmingham at 
two o'clock in the morning because these two were smoking at the back. I said, me está llorando, you know, I can't go. And it was so cold. So we had, we reached different levels. So, well, I, you know, when you want to smoke, you let me know, I stop. And, and But it was very, very good ambiente. And of course, we, we got to throw. We used to start in Bournemouth and, and finish in, in Edinburgh, you know, so we yeah. got to see a lot. We flew to, to Ireland a couple of times to do a, some TV shows. But it's, and obviously, the, I think initially when we started the Bozzi, it took a long time to, to get to grips with yeah. what everyone could contribute. But the good thing is, I'm, William was highly creative. I mean, he used to write music, write songs with Hector Cortez, and he won a few, a few, uh, some, some festivals. And in most cases, William used to come with a line, oh, I've had this, this thought, this line, what can we do to it? And we just to go, just get on, you know, just get on with it. Absolutely. That sounds good. And we didn't have the facilities that you have today. We yeah. would have today, you know, like you're recording on the phone, yeah. you know, and the quality is probably as good as what we would have had with a, a, a real to real in yeah. those days. So, and some of the ideas were written down on paper, notation. I mean, today, I not so long ago, I had an idea and I just walked in the street. I recorded the idea for the song and I just recorded it. So technology has, has, as we were talking before we started recording, advantages and disadvantages. Absolutely, and I agree with you 100%. One of the most important things, and you mentioned obviously the fact how William was and obviously get, having to know him to realize how serious or even how seriously took his music but at the same time not even being serious just being having a sense of humor and actually the banter and everything else because obviously at the end of the day you're spending almost three four months together but i remember very vividly i was always um, the summer cd was always played at home quite often and i remember just when i was maybe five maybe six and i just remember having the cd at home and then being with my dad and just seeing william walk past and around because we then you would be able to park in Main Street, which a lot of people may not, may not believe, but you would be able to back then. But the fact that when you could park in Main Street, I was there with my dad, and William just walks past. And obviously, dad, obviously knowing William like he did, he stops him, starts sort of talking, etc. And just when he when he introduced me to him, I was a bit starstruck, pretty much, and that's maybe the best way to put it. But then it's like the two, as the older I've gotten, and the, the older obviously because I know his I know his children as well, but obviously Cecilia is a good friend of mine. I've learned to appreciate his music even more, and obviously the music that you guys put out put out there, and the fact that he was so internationally renowned as well made it uh, makes him more. I want to say more overwhelming, and makes me very proud to have known him the way I did. See, see, I, I remember. Unfortunately, living, being born and living in the world has advantages, and obviously disadvantages, and it has a lot of advantages because if you think of our population, being such a small population, for example, in, in uh, Monsieur Voltaire, you win Monsieur Voltaire, you, you, you automatically enter this world. In other countries, to get to that stage, you would have to go probably to three or four stages. In music here, um, and similar in all the arts, I mean, you could you could represent Gibraltar. We uh, represented Gibraltar once or twice uh, in, in Morocco. That was another adventure and that and you could even do a, probably a, a short uh, mini-series on that. When, when I think it was the 25th anniversary of the, the King of, of Morocco, we were invited to Tetuan. 
and we spend the whole week there. Uh, but this is something that probably doesn't happen other groups in, in, in places like London, you know, to, yeah. to get an important gig. For example, to play uh, Origins, to play in Song of Praise with the, uh, a, a BBC programme, uh, people will be fighting over to, to, to get a slot in there, just for the, for the, forget about the money, we're talking about the exposure. In Gibraltar, it's a lot easier to get the exposure. Um, there are other issues, there are other issues. Um, we generalize, we always say there's a lot of talent, we're very talented. To be honest, I think we are as talented, we have as much talent as anywhere else in, in the world. The only thing that we are concentrated talent. The only thing that I um, some 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 of your listeners will probably think, you know, born like this common, but there's a lot of raw talent which needs to be nurtured and needs to be um, disciplined, yeah. and not disciplined in, in disciplined in terms of the the in, in, instrument discipline. And there is a reason why why when you learn an instrument, you learn your scales. And, and you practice certain things. There is a logic behind it, uh, the, the logic of progression. And you find that, yes, I see uh, there is a lot of talents, but yeah. if you want to reach a certain level, you, want, you, have to go, you have to progress beyond a certain level, which is yeah. above average if you, want to, if you want to make it. And uh, I think this is where perhaps education comes and when you look at the, and no one, one of the things that you normally do, and you, you're totally within the, the music scene, it's it's very healthy to to look around. And I mean, I'm I'm not 20 year old, you know, but I, I still know a lot of the musicians. But it's very healthy to see that we've gone from the one man band with a backing track, singing in a in a pub or entertaining, to 18, 20 year olds playing live yeah. with no backing tracks and playing a repertoire, which is some of the pieces, some of the, the songs that, that are well, well written well before they were born. And yeah. some, some of them well before the, the parents were born. And you know, the, it seems to be they're going back to, to the roots of, of good quality music. Yeah. I'm not saying that what's being produced now is not good quality, yeah. but it's, it's, it's really healthy to, to sit down Wherever you sit down and see a group, you know the. I haven't seen them live, but I saw um, a video of um, this group, Big Buy, which yeah. is. I think that they've only done a couple of performances, and one of one of the, the singers and is um, Paul Chipolini's son. And I, I was there. The, the repertoire was really good repertoire, but then you look at the people there, and they're all you know the. Um, Valentine has uh, he did A level music. So did uh, the Paul's son yeah. and Stuart Menes' son, who's there. He's also done a degree. He was playing the bass, and I was really impressed. And I said, "Oh, he's been playing the bass for for a few months." And this is so healthy, so healthy. And it's like you mentioned before, like we like even talks about. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that you, as well as vibrations as a whole, but 
that you learn to appreciate the 200, 300 euro pieces, they learn to appreciate 60, 70 euro pieces. It's the same thing, because mentioned that they play covers of tracks that before they were born and even before their parents were born as well. See, but I mean, those of those of who've done the A-level music, like, like I mean, Jesse, Jeremy Perez, and Murphy, all, all, the, all that crowd, they've had to study. Yeah. They've had to study the Bucks and the Vivaldis and... and uh, and Simon Dumas, they, they've had to study all this. I think you get a foundation of, of we're talking about when, when, you, when you look at Bach, the, uh, some, of, some of the music that Bach um, wrote can only be played by a privileged few in the yeah. world. Um, in the guitar, for example, some of the Bach pieces, you're really restricted by your, the, your physical William used to play a lot of Bach, but William's left hand was a very big hand, so his stretch was above average. Uh, it means that it doesn't matter how good you are, your stretch is, is a small stretch because you've got a small hand. You're never ever going to be able to play that piece. So, and when you think about vibrations, and obviously you know, you've done other things after that, but more than anything else, how, how, how flattering is it that people still uh, remember vibrations as long as they do? Very, because I mean, Victor, Victor Francis, every time, practically every time I see him, he wants, he wants to revive the project. Because when William died, two years later, we did a, a tribute concert. And I, and I got uh, James Mesoud, uh, who's an incredible guitarist. James is incredible. He's on guitarist. another level, in my opinion. He's, uh, you know, and, and with, if I, I can just talk about James for a, James, we, we communicate so well when we're playing the guitar. Um, that, you know, in, in our group six play, which we, we do occasionally and that, we, we hardly practice. We probably practice, you know, twice a year or something. But that, that's part of the fun because it's, uh, everything happens on the spots. And you can do that with, with certain musicians. You can't do it yep. with, and with James, we laugh a lot because sometimes we go and do a, I go and do a rift and he does exactly the same rift just at the same time. But James is an incredible musician. But I got James to join and, and Dennis, Dennis Bertrand. Dennis, a lot of people know Dennis for his singing, but Dennis used to play the guitar with me quite quite a lot when we were studying in the UK. And then he left it, he picked it up, and he, but he, he, he actually um, did very well with, with vibrations in the rhythm section. And we did a concert and we, we had to, the last, the last concert with vibrations we had um, Yves Booby was a, a French flautist, which we used to, because obviously Victor and uh, Johnny Victor is, lives in Canada now, and we had to bring him over, and there was the extra expense because I mean, so uh, Victor has always wanted to revive the the project, and in in all fairness to him, it wouldn't be that difficult. Uh, the flute would be a problem. Because I don't think vibrations is vibrations without a flute. Yeah, a flute, it's an integral part. Even though there are some pieces which are purely guitar, but the flute plays an important part. Um, it's flattering to see that uh, the, the other day someone said, oh, I still listen to some of your tracks. It's flattering that the music doesn't get old. Yeah. And I think it's the fact that we've picked very old pieces of music, which have never got old. Do you know? Yeah, uh, makes sense. Almost classics within the classics, and we've revamped them. One of the tracks which I 
it's always there, the death of the whale. But I, I didn't pick that one because it's quite a long track and it takes a lot of explanation so that the audience knows exactly what's happening. But and the sad thing with, with the Vibrations project is that 20 years on, as I said when, I, when we started the interview, anybody who's 20 or even 25 would have never heard Vibrations, yeah. old as a baby. Um, and let alone William Gomez, you know, William Gomez, um, if, if I were to go into a music room and talk about William Gomez as a guitarist, most people would look at me thinking, no, no not yeah. a clue, not a clue. It's even just knowing the facts like we talked about before. When we talk about Paco de Lucia and obviously all, all these great guitarists that have come after, but the fact that he was so internationally renowned makes it a positive. And as, like I mentioned, that that's what added to me, I suppose, and being proud of the fact that he was Gibraltarian and the fact that he'd done so many things. Well, it's why his Ave Maria, his arrangements, all that is still played everywhere in, yeah. in the world. It's stuff like that that needs to be taught, I think, when it comes to culture, especially, obviously, we've got the Hall of Fame, which we started last year. Obviously, William was obviously a first ballot nominee for that same reason, but like many others, you know, and Hector Cortes, and just to witness from what's gone from when Hector, William, to present day, to see the Simon Dumas of the world, the Evan Torrentes of the world, uh, Patrick Murphy, all these young kids or young, or young adults, more, more like it, who have tried to make a career in music or even trying to make a career in music. I mean, William uh, was all for, remember, William used to produce the, the Missy Bolton. Yeah. And he always tried to include, I mean, we played in a few of them, obviously, but we didn't want to over, ex, you know, overdo it and plan the vibration. Yeah. Yeah. Because, but so, but I remember William, um, Presenting Aero Monteverde as a master. Aero must have been, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. Aero was always a very talented yeah. pianist. And uh, telling Aero, you want to play in the Missy Volta? You know, I want people to, to hear you play. You know, yes. So he had, he had those those detalles, uh, you know, that let's, if you have a good musician, let's, or good singer, Mamo, like a closer. And that's the most important thing. Like it's giving those the opportunity. Like you mentioned, obviously the fact that he was producing Mr. Walter was giving that opportunity to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Mr. Walters, like I think that they they still do it with some festival. You used to bring an international artist, and this is where Paco de Lucia came in '81. And yeah. was, he, he came to the cave, and uh, which was it needed? Well, uh, debatable. You know, debatable because I think in some cases you, you might need an international artist to sell tickets. Yeah. But in in some cases, I think that there's a enough local talent to to fill up venues and 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 give the, the up and coming musicians the exposure, which it's so badly needed in a way. I mean, I always sum it up with two words. You just got to look around, I suppose. Well, three words. You've got to look around to see what there is available because it's like you said, sometimes you don't really need a support act that's an internationally renowned artist or, or an internationally renowned band to fill the seats or even fill the void. No, I mean, I've, I've, uh, there are acts and there are acts. And uh, I mean, you're, you're in the industry and you know, uh, as, as I said before, 
sometimes you like not to criticize the song festival, but song festivals with a complete orchestra, live orchestra, is not compatible to a song festival with a backing track where you have a complete orchestra. I understand the the implications of having a, a large orchestra financially, the logistics, yeah. um, but there's nothing like a live performance. And we've had we've had uh, artists coming into the Miffy Bolters and song festivals with backing tracks. And I dare say some of them even with full backing track in, in terms of even the voiceover. Because, uh, you know, the, the trained ear in music yeah. will, will tell you that sometimes some people are minding over tracks, which in a way is a bit turbulent. <laughs> <laughs> in a way. So we're going to leave it at that. And obviously, we, all we can do is pretty much thank you for the music, and the most important thing. And of course, thank you for your time. It's, a very, impo- it's very important to not just have these interviews but to reminisce about as to things that you've done and things that you continue to see across the local music scene in general yeah david thanks for having me here and you know whatever i, I know i'm out of the scene out of the radar <laughs> under the radar but uh anything i can do to help you guys just call me i appreciate it and obviously like you, like you mentioned you've got the eyes and the ears so that's the most important thing so we'll leave it at that guys we'll be back in two weeks with another episode and obviously, like we mentioned before, we can't do this without our sponsors of Learning Speed, who are just gracious enough to sponsor the show. And they just believe in everything that we do. So thank you to them. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back in two weeks with more straight outage water. Take care, guys. And we'll be back in two weeks. Take care. Hola,
Thanks for listening. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show wherever you access your podcasts by searching for GLMS Podcasts.